third man walking. Every time I'm commentating on Live at the Bike and I ask the chat for questions, someone asks something along the lines of, my bankroll is X. Is that enough for me to play 2-5? Which I'm sure seems like a totally reasonable question to which you would hope I would answer yes or no. But I never do and instead end up stammering out an answer that probably isn't very satisfying. And that's because without having a lot of specific information about the player, it's impossible to give a clear answer about how much money they need to have available to play poker. The bankroll issue is actually really complex. So today I'd like to address it on the podcast where I'm able to think things through beforehand. So I don't know what sort of bankroll you need to play 2-5, but I can discuss why I don't know and what sorts of things you should be thinking about if you're hoping to move up in stakes. First, and most importantly, a question I'd ask you if you came to me individually and asked about your bankroll is, what does bankroll mean to you? If you say that you have a $10,000 bankroll, what does that mean? Does that mean that $10,000 is all the money you have in the world, and if you lose it, you'll be living on the street? Or for example, do you have a well-paying job, and that $10,000 is just walking around money? If that $10,000 is all the money you have, you should be extremely careful with it. Maybe you shouldn't play poker at all, or maybe you should only play microstakes online. The second most important question I might ask you is, are you a winning player? Now, there's nothing wrong with being a losing player. Most poker players are, since poker is a less than zero sum game. And of course, the poker economy requires the presence of people who are just playing for fun, people who can afford to lose and who don't mind doing so. But if you aren't actually winning over time, that $10,000 you've set aside to play poker is just some money you're likely to eventually lose. The third most important question is, are you sure you're a winning player? Are you sure you aren't just extrapolating from a month or two of good results that aren't sustainable? What sort of sample do you have that suggests that you're winning? You can see here how crucial it is to keep good records and to be honest with yourself. Depending on the game, a slightly losing player could easily win over a few hundred hours or more of live poker. And here's a fourth important question. Do you have life leaks that cut into your bankroll? Do you spend money as soon as you get it? Do you have a gambling problem? If so, that bankroll isn't going to be there long, even if you really are winning. Beyond that, there are a number of other smaller questions you should ask yourself. How much are you winning? A player who's winning two big blinds an hour will face much more variance than a player who's winning 10, and therefore has much more risk of going broke. How much variance is there in your game? A player who's winning, say, five big blinds an hour in an uncapped game where stacks are constantly going in will deal with more variance than a player who's winning five big blinds an hour in a game that's capped and relatively tame. And someone who faces roughly the same opponents night after night will deal with less variance than someone who's constantly facing new ones. Next, what game are you playing? My specialty is no limit hold'em cash games, but other poker variants will require you to manage your money differently. A limit hold'em game probably has significantly less variance than no limit, but a PLO game probably has more. And live tournaments, where it can take many years for a player to really find their level if they ever do, are a different beast entirely. Also, how much do you play? A winning player who plays lots of hours will get out of downswings more quickly than one who doesn't. And finally, how much money do you need 
to feel like you can play the kind of poker you want to play. You need to have enough money available to hear a call when you need a call and to run a big bluff when the time is right. If you're playing scared or you're playing to protect your stack, you aren't winning as much as you could if you're winning at all. And by the way, this principle applies to the amount of money you have available to you at whatever casino you're playing at just for that day. If you have a bankroll of $20,000, but you've only brought $1,500 with you to play 2-5, it might be hard for you to play your best because you'll frequently be put in spots where if you make a wrong decision, you have to go home. Also, as any number of poker players have observed over the years, losing feels worse than winning feels good. Or at least it does for me. So I like to avoid situations where losing feels catastrophic. If you're putting big portions of your net worth in play at any one time, you're going to feel pretty bad a lot. And not only is that unpleasant in itself, but it's probably not good for your game. So one reason to have more money available than you think you need is that when you have a bad day or a bad week or a bad month, you'll still feel like it's going to be okay and that the world isn't crashing down on you. The time I felt most like that was probably around 2012 when I still had a bunch of teaching and writing jobs. One weekend, there was a $400 tournament at the new casino in Columbus I think I bricked it three times, plus lost a couple hundred dollars playing 1-2 while my brother was still in the tournament. This was a few years before I started playing No Limit Hold'em cash games regularly. So about $1,400, or almost three months rent, in a time in which I probably had less than $10,000 to my name. After my brother busted, we walked out to the parking lot, and I felt like the world was spinning around me. It was like something had ended, and whatever happened next would have to be the start of some crappy new chapter where I was $1,400 poorer. It's not fun to think that way, and it's no frame of mind in which to play poker. And I suspect my experience is not uncommon. I remember a recreational player, a guy who had a good job and who I wouldn't describe as a problem gambler, telling me he'd had sessions where he cried and pounded the steering wheel while driving home. Avoid putting yourself in positions like this. Pretend your pain threshold is an electric fence and don't touch it. Now, you'll frequently hear that to play a certain game, you need a large number of buy-ins in your bankroll, like say 20. And I do think that for your usual game, you should err on the side of having more buy-ins available than you think you need. It's easy to underestimate the amount of variance you'll face. You want to have enough money available to comfortably make good decisions, even if they're risky. And you want to have enough money available to go on a downswing without it causing you horrible stress or otherwise impacting your quality of life. But I think that principle applies best to the game you play regularly. There can also be good reasons to shot take, to occasionally play in games that are a bit bigger than your bankroll would dictate. This is, I realize, a difficult idea to square with the advice I've already given, but I'm going to try. So there are several good reasons to occasionally shot take. First, if you're winning in small games, you probably don't want to get stuck in them. The higher up you go, the more variance you'll face because the players are better, but you'll be paying less rake relative to the size of the pots you play. And second, you should want to challenge yourself. As you start to play a bigger game, you'll probably see that in some ways it's similar to smaller games you're familiar with. It's still just two cards, and people still make mistakes. But you'll also begin to notice deficiencies in your own game that you can figure out how to address. 
Noticing leaks and fixing them will help you maintain interest in the game and it'll make you better. You can and should also do this by sometimes playing online poker, but the games play so differently online that you're not likely to pick up on population trends that are unique to live games. And third, having your antennae up for bigger games can create opportunities. When you're thinking about taking a shot, you should game select. You shouldn't take shots in games with six good pros. You should be looking for games where there are a couple of fun players and suddenly there's a big game you're confident you can beat. If you want, if your pain threshold won't permit you to take a huge shot right away, you can buy in for fewer big blinds than you normally would or only allow yourself to play for a couple hours. Once you've taken a shot in a bigger game, you don't have to stay there forever. If it doesn't work out, if you lose a couple buy-ins, that's okay. Just move down to your regular game and grind your way back up. Even if you win, you can move back down and wait for another good shot. So, I suggest a flexible approach. I don't like saying things like, you should have a $5,000 bankroll to play live one too, because your personal situation will involve lots of variables I don't know anything about. I also suggest occasionally taking some calculated risks to grow your bankroll and move up. But, as I've discussed many times on this podcast, poker can confuse us and can become an instrument of self-delusion. And I suspect that, for at least some people who ask bankroll questions, the entire idea of a bankroll is mostly just fun with numbers. Having a comfortable bankroll for whatever games you play is important, but it's less important than your win rate. And not to hold myself up as a poker success story, but I'll talk briefly about how I personally relate to this bankroll question. And to tell you the truth, since 2015, I personally have never thought much about what my bankroll is. As I've discussed before, in 2015, I started playing a live 1-2 that was essentially uncapped, and as I started winning, I started buying in deeper. Then I started playing 2-5 when that game looked good, and then I started playing 5-10 when that looked good, and so on. I always played with money I could afford to lose, and I was always winning enough that it never really seemed like my bankroll was in danger. So the specific amount of my bankroll isn't something I think much about, except insofar as I'm grateful to have more than enough that I can roll with the punches and not sweat a big losing week or a losing month. My guess is that many of the sorts of people who ask bankroll questions are actually not big winning players. Instead, they're break-even-ish sorts of players who want to be responsible with their money, which of course is good, but who also would perhaps rather think their way through this money management issue rather than addressing deficiencies in their games. And look, there's nothing wrong with being a break-even player or a small winner. In fact, if you think about how much rake the casino takes from you, becoming a break-even player is in some ways an impressive accomplishment. I don't know the precise amount of rake I pay, but it's probably something like $30,000 a year, which means I have to be $30,000 a year better than my opponents before I make a dime. If you can simply beat the rake, you're doing something right. But if you're a break-even player, my first piece of advice would simply be to try to get better at poker, because the better you are, the less likely you are to go broke. Put in hours at the table, study, find other winning players with whom you can discuss hands. The better you get, the less bankroll will be an issue. Win a lot, so the bankroll issue matters less. Again, my apologies if that sounded arrogant. 
But I do think it's true that the best way to address bankroll trouble is to improve relative to your competition, either by getting better at poker yourself or by finding softer games. So that's my final advice. If you are a winning player who's building a bankroll, protect it as well as you can while actively trying to make it grow. Be smart at the poker table and do your best to plug any life leaks you might have. Don't gamble in the pits, don't gamble where you don't have an edge, and limit your non-poker spending. Have enough money available to play your game the right way. Expect plenty of variance. Don't be afraid to take shots if you see a good one and it won't ruin you financially. And don't be a dum-dum. I wish I could be more specific, but I can't. It's May the 11th, 2021, and yesterday I played the biggest game I've ever been in. It was a game that was supposed to be on Live at the Bike. We played for the first hour and a half or so in the Live at the Bike room, at which point the production team realized that there was some sort of technical problem and that the stream wouldn't be able to go forward. So they stopped the stream. They moved us out of that room and into the high limit room at the bike. And we continued playing for about another five hours, at which point I left. The the game may have continued for much longer than that. I'm not really sure. I've played this game twice. This is the 5-5 with a $50 big blind ante game uh, that goes early in the week on Live at the Bike. But this time was bigger because we kept a straddle on the whole time. So since there's the $50 big blind ante, it doesn't really make sense to have a $10 straddle. So we do a $50 straddle. So it's 5-5, then there's a third blind, which is $50, and a dead 50 in the middle that comes from the big blind. It's as if it's a two blind game where the big blind is like $75. It's not exactly like that, but it's pretty close. So that's just a huge game. The the biggest game I had ever really played in before sitting in this game a couple weeks ago for the first time was 10-20-40. So this is really big. And so I got up after about seven hours of poker total and I was just beat. I knew I was not making the best decisions. I wasn't really making sense. And... I'm not used to that, you know, if I'm in 510 or 51020, I can easily play for 8 or 10 hours or sometimes more and be fine. But in this particular case, the game was just so big, I was exhausted and I've always, you know, kind of understood why poker players are so into physical fitness, but on a day like this, I get it <laughs> because I do feel like potentially being in better shape might help me deal with with very swingy situations like this. That said, fortunately, this was a swingy session that went really well for me. I built up a big stack right away, won a couple of fairly big hands in the early going. The biggest one of these was uh, I had pocket aces in the cutoff. There was a limp. I raised $250. The straddle called and limper also called. So there was about in the pot. The flop came queen, seven, three rainbow. It checked to me. I bet $275 with my pocket aces. The straddle called and the limper folded. 
So now there was about $1,400 in the pot. The turn was a nine. My opponent checked again. Now, I didn't know this guy, but just in the first half hour, 45 minutes of the session, I'd seen him put in a big chunk of his stack as a caller, pre-flop with pocket deuces, and then call off his stack on a 6-5-5 board. And he was correct, uh, but that told me that this guy really does not like folding, and I just need to find some sizings that a queen is not going to fold to. So I bet $800, and he called again. So there was about $3,000 in the pot heading to the river, which was an offsuit five. So now queen, seven, three, nine, five. And I think it's very likely my opponent has a queen. So he checks again. And again, I'm trying to find a size that a queen will not hero fold to. I bet $1,600, a little bit more than half the pot, which is not a big bet in terms of the size of the pot, but was a big bet in terms of how the game was playing to this point. My opponent did call. I tabled my aces and I was good. So soon after that, we got moved into the high limit room. I had about $11,000 in my stack and then played another big hand. So again, there was a limp, this one from under the gun. And I had aces again, this time in the hijack and raised to $275. It folded back around to the limper who re-raised to $800. So this looked like such a great spot. Usually when someone limps and then re-raises from under the gun, they mean business. And so I expect my opponent to have a really good hand here. Something like aces through queens or maybe jacks and then ace king. That's often what's going on when someone takes this line. So typically when I four bet in position, I'm going to pick a fairly small sizing, like 2.2 to maybe 2.5x. But this time I think I can go a little bit bigger because I don't think my opponent's gonna fold. So I put in the fourth bet to $2,200 and he calls. So now there's about $4,500 in the pot. The flop comes jack eight seven with the jack and eight of spades. I do not have the ace of spades with my aces. My opponent now leads for $3,300, about three quarters of the pot, which this is just an amazing spot. I have about $8,500 total. And I think with aces in particular, there's nothing to do but move in. There's some chance my opponent could have jacks, although I'd be a little bit surprised if he both went for the limp three bet preflop and then took this very large sizing with top set post flop. So maybe he has jacks, in which case he just wins the money, but otherwise I should be ahead. So I jam for 8,500-ish. My opponent calls, we run out two turns and two rivers, they're all low, and I hold against pocket kings. So that's almost a $22,000 pot, which is twice as big as the previous largest hand I had ever won. So. Yeah, biggest pot ever, pretty psyched to win that one. So the session's going brilliantly. I do eventually hit somewhat of a rough patch. In this next hand, the cutoff raises to $150. The button who is a tournament pro who also commentates for Live at the Bike, re-raises to $500. And I'm in the small blind with pocket queens. So I'm gonna treat this spot as 
a format or fold. So I'm never going to be calling here. I'm always going to be raising or folding. And this hand against these positions, certainly good enough to put in a fourth bet. So I re-raise to $1,500. It folds back around to the pro on the button who calls and he has maybe 4,500 or 5,000 back in his stack after making this call. So there's about 3,250 in the pot and the flop comes king, nine, six with two diamonds. I have two black queens. The spot is not really ideal, but I think I want to bet with most of my range here, mostly for a small size. I have all the combinations of pocket kings here. I also have aces and ace king. So this should generally be a pretty good board for my range. So I bet 900 and my opponent goes all in. So I think now I have a very clear fold. It's possible that he could have something like ace queen of diamonds and bluff me, but that's fine. That's a hand that has a lot of equity anyway. And I'm just not going to be folding here all that much. I think it's pretty likely that my opponent has ace-king. Maybe he has aces some of the time. I think this would be a pretty good line with aces. Although I'm not sure how often he just flats with them preflop. Regardless, with two black queens, actually sneakily one of the worst hands I can turn up with on this particular board. I just need to fold. So a couple hours later, I come back from dinner and I buy the button from the small blind position which means I put in $60 dead in the middle and then put $50 in front of me as if I'm the straddle. So I am all of the blinds right now. Middle position, who is maybe a pro, I'm not sure, but definitely a guy who has moved up through the stakes in the past year or two, even though he plays a pretty unconventional game, raises to $150. There are two calls and in my straddle type blind, I look down at ace king with the ace of diamonds and re-raise to 950. The middle position raiser calls and the first caller who I believe is in the hijack also calls. So there's already about $3,000 in this pot. Again, I have ace king with the ace of diamonds and the flop comes jack 10 deuce with the jack and 10 of diamonds. It's tempting to bet here since I have outs to the nuts on an offsuit queen and I have the ace of diamonds, but this is generally a board that should hit my opponents pretty hard. In particular, the middle position player can have top or middle set here, and the other player can certainly have a hand like jack-10 suited. So I think I need to check here with ace-king. So I check and it checks through. So still $3,000 in the pot heading to the turn. Again, I have ace-king. The flop is jack-10-deuce with two diamonds, and the turn is a king, which is a very good card, although maybe not as great as it seems at first glance. Yes, I have top pair, top kicker here, but either of these players could have ace-queen, which has now made the nuts, and I think there's an outside possibility that someone has something that now made two pair, like king-10 suited. I think that would be a light call from either player pre-flop, but I think they're both capable of it. So I check, the middle position player also checks, and the hijack now bets $600, so just one-fifth a pot, which makes my decision fairly easy, I think. I call, and the middle position player calls as well. So now there's $4,800 in the pot. The river is an offsuit seven, which completes a straight for nine-eight, so 
Jack 10, Deuce, King 7, but otherwise shouldn't change much. I check, middle position checks, and now the hijack bets $900. So again, a very small size into $4,800. And I have a pretty easy decision. I just call and middle position folds. The hijack says, you're good. And I table my cards and take down a pretty big one. And finally, I play another decent size hand. When the small blind completes for $50, I also complete from the big blind with 10 eight of hearts and the straddle checks. So there's about $200 in the pot heading to the flop, which comes eight, six, five with the five of hearts. The small blind checks, I bet $110 into 200. I think this is debatable, but I have a vulnerable top pair and I wouldn't mind getting some folds here. However, they both call. So now there's 530 in the pot and the turn is a really good card. It's an offsuit 10. So now the board is eight, six, five, 10, and I have 10, eight of hearts giving me top two pair. Now the small blind leads for $500 into 530. So almost the full size of the pot. Don't know what this means. I do know this particular small blind likes to slow play. So maybe there's a chance he has nine, seven here, but obviously I'm not folding top two pair. I call and the straddle also calls. So now there's 2030 in the pot and the river is an eight, which is awesome. So eight, six, five, ten, eight. And now I have a full house. That is basically the nuts. Since the pot was limped preflop, it seems pretty unlikely that either player has pocket tens. So yeah, basically I have the nuts and the small blind now checks. And at this point, I, uh, <laughs> I'm struggling a little bit. My, my, um, my mind is fading a little bit after all this high stakes poker. And I forget to include the straddles call on the turn in my calculation of the pot size. And I bet $1,200, which in my head is about 80% of the pot. It's not though, it's 60 because the pot is about $2,000, not about 1,500. And my thinking here is that I'm just hoping that somehow someone has the other eight, the last remaining eight. And that's a card that can potentially pay me off. So the straddle, for example, could have a hand like nine, eight or eight, seven. And I'm not sure what either player is doing. Actually, I just know I have a really strong hand and would like them to call. So I mean to bet 80%. I actually bet 60, which maybe also is fine in that uh, it's possible that the small blind who is a tricky player could have something like 10-9 and pay me off with a 10. But in this case, what happens is that the straddle calls and the small blind folds. So I table my hand and again, it's good. So at this point, I realize I'm making mental mistakes. I'm operating on adrenaline and I just don't have it anymore. So although the game is still pretty good, it's probably time for me to head out. So I rack up and do some accounting and I've won $19,500 for the session. Plus I won about $1,000 in 5-5 earlier in the day. So won over $20,000 for the day, which is an amazing day. I did sell 30% of my action in the big game, but even after paying out my backers, I'd still won over 14 grand for the day. So just a huge, huge day. And I'm excited to get back in this game again at some point. 
Thanks for listening to Third Man Walking. You can find me on Twitter at Third Walking or via email at thirdmanwalkingpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you.